Welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. We're going to start a new series this week, and it's going to be focused on discipleship, and it's called Follow Me, because that's the invitation that Jesus gave to the disciples long ago, the same invitation that has been given to everyone who enters into a life of discipleship, the same invitation that we have either received or we're getting ready to receive and that we will continue to receive, to follow me, Jesus says. And so it's a six-week series, and we're focused on how we can be disciples. And so we're going to begin at the beginning, at the beginning of our story as disciples and at the beginning of the world and creation itself. We receive the invitation to become a disciple, which is simply a way to say student, a student, a student who commits themselves fully to their teacher, to their master, that submits themselves completely to the teaching and the leading of their teacher and master, to follow in the way of God as revealed through the teaching and leading of the master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so this is a lifelong commitment. So let's begin at the beginning, because this is the first Sunday after the season of Epiphany. The season began this week, but this is the first Sunday, and we focus on the baptism of Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about our baptism, and we're going to remember our baptism, or perhaps, hopefully, receive the invitation and be a part of baptism for the first time. Now, we won't do that as a part of the service, but we want this to be an invitation. If you are interested in baptism, then if you are, please contact us. Please go to our website. Please call, call our church. You can email me. You see that information below. Reach out and let's talk about how this church, this part of the larger body of Christ across the world can walk with you and be a part of God's work in your life as you seek to commit to be a part of the worldwide church, to be a part of what God is doing, to be a part of a life of discipleship. And so let's talk about what all this means by going back to the beginning and by understanding how it speaks to us still. And I can tell you, it's been a strange week to prepare this message. We talk about the baptism every year, about this same time. But it's different this year because we're just a few days removed from all that ensued in our nation's capital. Been very few moments in my life that have been what the last few days have been, particularly that day. We've all experienced a, a wide range of emotions, opinions, perspectives, and we've seen it through different circumstances. We've, we've seen images with different labels. I mean, what the crowd of people is being called depends on what channel you are watching, what images you're seeing, the videos that are emerging of some of the the incredibly traumatic and awful things that occurred. We've listened to speeches from people that were there and supported it, from people that opposed it. We've heard condemnations. We've heard praising. 
We've waited as details are just new details are emerging every single day and we're going to know more by the end of today than we do right now. And we're just waiting to see what happened exactly. Why? How? Who? These are the questions we must sit with. These are hard questions. Hard because we never thought we would see what we saw. Hard because we never thought we'd be dealing with what we are dealing with. And for the most part, we just have to wait. We have to wait to see. Now, there's been an incredible amount of energy by different groups. There's been a lot of shouting. There's been a lot of finger pointing. And all the groups that have a stake in this fight have had plenty to say and, and plenty to try to convince us to see and understand and agree with. And, and it seems people from all the groups are still under the impression that if you just let, yell loud enough, that you'll get people convinced. If you just raise your voice, somehow that improves your argument. And if we just bring the right amount of demonization upon our opposition, then they'll be seen as wrong and we'll be seen as right. And you can see that on every channel, can't you? And you've probably experienced that in many of your conversations, and maybe you've participated in that yourself. It's natural. Emotions are high. It feels a bit chaotic. It feels a bit dark. And it's so interesting that this dark day, this dark Wednesday, was the day of Epiphany, the season of light. We saw such darkness on a day when we celebrate the coming of the light, the witness of the light to the world. And so as we sit and wait for the meaning and the reason and all the truth behind all that happened in our nation's capital, we, we're hearing people respond. And maybe you're, if you're like me, you're wondering, how do I respond? How would God want me to respond? What should the church say and do in response to times like these? And truth be told, I don't know what the right response is in detail. I don't know exactly what to say. But I do know that the right response is firmly planted in the realm of love. And I know you might be thinking, oh gosh, that's so idealistic and naive, that's unrealistic and it's, it's weak and it sounds foolish. And yeah, it does. It does. Paul, Paul's pretty clear in that the way of love as witnessed through the cross, it is foolishness to the world around us. The world operates by a different wisdom. But we want to be disciples of God. We want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and no other kingdom. And so this foolishness of love, we know it is the right response. How do we know this? Because the biblical story echoes it again and again and again. And we're going to hear a couple of echoes in our lectionary readings Today, we're going to read from Genesis 1, and we're going to read from Mark 1. And we're going to read these paired passages on this first Sunday after Epiphany, the season of light. And remember that on one of the darkest days in American history, we still have the light of Christ with us. Now, the darkness we all witnessed that day, the darkness we all feel, and really that darkness is nothing new, is it? We've had dark days before, and we'll have dark days again. It's been here since the beginning, this darkness, as we're about to hear in our first passage. There's great value in the darkness. I'm not saying it's altogether good. I'm saying there's value to it. The darkness can teach us quite a bit. If we're truly 
wanting to learn and grow, then everything that happened Wednesday is going to teach us quite a bit. But we celebrate the season of light and epiphany, and we celebrate it even amidst the darkness. And so let us begin this celebration as we read from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, let there be light, and so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We learn quite a bit in these few opening verses of our entire biblical canon. And what we learn is that everything here You and me, the world, the past, the present, the future, the grass, the sky, time, gravity. It's all here out of an act of goodness, out of an act of love. It was created through purpose. And we look at the story and the the opening lines that the earth was formless and void or without shape or form. Or another way to translate it is it was wild and it was waste. And the waters, they represent chaos, lack of order, all present there at the beginning, darkness. But also there, also there was God. And we find that the wind of God was there. Now this word wind comes from the Hebrew word ruach. And ruach is a feminine word. It means wind or breath or spirit. And so we find that while there was darkness and chaos and wild and waste, also... The Spirit, the Spirit of God, she was there too, waiting, anticipating, hovering. And then God spoke the Word, and through the Word, light came into existence along with everything else. But it all begins with light. Out of the waters emerges through the Spirit, and through this great act of love and creation comes light that then begins to work and bring order into the world. Out of the light comes all things new. And we've all experienced the inbreaking of light. And if we picture this story, we might picture it kind of romantic and quiet, but I don't picture it that way. If you've ever slept in or if you've ever been laying in a dark room or sitting in a dark room or you've been outside in the pitch dead of night with no light to be seen and suddenly light strikes you, suddenly a light hits your face or the light comes on, you know that it's painful, that it hurts, that you slam your eyes and you cover and you say, oh, put the light out, turn it off because it hurts. Because when there is so much darkness, the presence of light can be described as violent. Maybe this wind, the Spirit of God, was a rushing, violent kind of wind. Because it's disruptive when light comes. When order enters into chaos, it is disruptive. It was true then, and it's true now. And we see this beautiful image that's given to us, and we know that 
a few billion years later, we're gonna to come to another scene where there's more waters amidst other kinds of darkness, and from the waters is going to be the work of the Spirit coming down and God speaking the word, and through love and this action, we have our baptism scene. But I want you to understand that while we have our own idea of baptism, and sometimes we, we, we get so distant from the story as presented in our oldest gospel of Mark, I want us to be right in the thick of it. Because in the thick of it is the same kind of wild and waste and dark and chaotic reality. And it was difficult. And it's one that we are experiencing today. And what I mean by that is we understand that the gospel of Mark is a political, it's a political narrative. It is the gospel. That word itself is political. And that would probably take a whole other conversation to explain that all. But Mark jumps right into the story of Christ coming and bringing order and God's kingdom into the chaos of the world of first century Israel. And to understand a bit about that first century world, we got to talk about politics because politics were crazy then. So there was Rome. Rome pretty much had control of all the land around the Mediterranean. That includes Israel. Israel was actually the one little bit of country that the northern part of the Roman Empire could actually get to the southern part. And so if you needed to move soldiers, you had to go through Israel. So Israel was always full of Roman soldiers traveling. It was always a place of conflict, and even more so in this time. You had Roman soldiers. You had Herod's soldiers who served Herod the king. Herod Antipas and, and other of the uh, tetrarchs that were there that were appointed by Rome. So Rome even had control of the politics in Israel. But then you had other soldiers in Israel, soldiers who were of the people and who killed and fought Herod's and Rome's soldiers. So that's just the political military presence. You could look at Israel itself and you have Galilee in the north, Samaria kind of in the middle, and then Judea below in the south. And Judea and Samaria didn't get along, and Samaria and Galilee didn't get along, and, and it was always kind of a, a tension between the groups of people that comes from one area or the other. And then within, the areas themselves are different religious groups. And so you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have the Essenes, you have the people that aren't a part of any of those groups, and they're all in tension with each other pointing fingers and trying to get everyone else to see things their way. And so every group has their story to tell. Every group thinks that they are right and the others are wrong. Sounds familiar, yes? Into this scene, into this tension, comes our oldest gospel, right in the thick of it. I mean, right in the most heated moments of it. John the Baptist is presented as an image of Elijah, the great the great Hebrew prophet, what he's wearing, how it describes what, he, what he's wearing, what he ate. This is uh, meant to evoke Elijah. And Elijah was going to come when the end of the age was at hand and the beginning of the new age was going to begin. Sometimes we refer to this in the word end times, but really the better way to say it is goal times, where it's all headed. It's all headed to this particular goal. It's not the end. It's the end of the old, but it's the beginning of the new. So it's not the end of all time together. It's the transition from the world's way of darkness and chaos once again into God's way of light and order. God's kingdom coming in. 
All things being set to right. A great judgment because God is going to judge. And the right will be lifted up and those in the wrong will be humbled. And everyone's convinced that they are right. And so we have this image given to us at the beginning of our passage before it gets to the baptism to set the stage because the time of God's order coming and and the restoration of God is upon them. The new creation, the beginning of the new age, the inbreaking kingdom, the, the arrival of God's light is coming. And that's how this story of the Gospel of Mark kicks off. And so let us read from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He announced, one stronger than I is coming after me. I am not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the Spirit like a dove coming down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I dearly love, and you I find happiness. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now the people that were there in the area, in these three areas at this time, they were waiting and hoping for God to come and intervene. They wanted God to bring order to the world. But everyone had different ideas as to what that looked like. And not just the people of Israel. If you ask Rome, what does it look like for order to be brought to the world for peace? They would point to redemptive violence, Pax Romana, peace through war. And it would be Caesar who was called son of God. Caesar, who's a prince of peace, who would be the one to bring it. But if you did ask the Israelites, well, the answer of how it would all happen and and what it would look like would depend on who you asked you ask the Judeans, they'd point to the temple. They'd point to Jerusalem. If you ask the Samaritans, they'd point to their mountain. If you ask the Galileans, they'd point to the hills and the revolutionaries. If you ask the Pharisees, they'd point their fingers at everyone else and say they're not following the law. They're not living the letter of the law as it's written. And so they need to be cut off or they need to turn and do as we are telling them to do. If you asked the Sadducees, they'd say it's all about sacrifice. They need to be sacrificing They need to be living this kind of life where there's there's no sin in Israel. If you ask the Essenes, they've given up on the whole system altogether, and they've left, and they're in the wilderness out near the Jordan, and they're awaiting, trying to rid themselves of corruption. And then you have the rich, and you have the poor. There's just a whole mess of people, and all have their different ideas. If you ask the Zealots and the Sicarii, of Galilee, these nationalists in the hills, they would say it's by the sword. We got to fight. We got to kill soldiers. We have to fight and we'll await for our Messiah, our anointed king, our, our king from the line of David who will pick up the sword with us and who will lead us 
so that we can win the world's game of war. That's what they expected. Everyone had their own version of the answer, and, and they all had it predetermined. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, we all have our idea of how it's supposed to be. Some of us point fingers, some of us grab swords, and some of us say we just need to live a particular way. Now, we've all heard these in our own country, our own world, our own denomination, and our own community. We've seen again and again how the system around us, the world around us, depends on money for the great power, violence, ego, pride, nationalism. That's in the politics world. If we, if we turn to the church world with our politics there too, we have denominations and we all have our different theologies and understandings and methods and practice. We can even look at baptism itself and we know there are arguments out there about what's the right way. And somehow doing it one way versus the other determines how God is or will not act. So how does God respond to this situation, this circumstance that's just so tense and full of friction? How does God respond to the situation in first century? The way that God always responds. In love. In the kind of love that's unexpected. God is righteous. God can do what God is the judge. God has all the power. And what does God do? Does God jump into our game, our fight, and fight by our rules? No. God does send the Messiah, the anointed, the true king, and sends the anointed into the waters of the chaos, into the waters of baptism with us, to stand with us in these chaotic waters that somehow bring about a renewal, a new creation, a new beginning, a rebirth. Maybe the people out there with John, they all had their ideas. You know, there were probably people there who were from Judea, that were from Samaria, that were from Galilee, that, that had different political understandings. They all thought they knew, but it's so beautiful that they all entered the same water together to turn to God. Forgive us, of our own stubborn ways, of our own egos and pride, of our own judgment. They all stepped into the water together and suddenly it didn't matter what they had claimed or thought. It didn't matter. It was good enough that they just got into the waters and God enters through Jesus into the waters with us because God's love is so much bigger, so much bigger than any particular line of reasoning, any particular political theory, so much bigger than any one theology or, or even one person and what they're able to conceive. The Messiah King, the descendant of David, the very word of God and flesh enters into the waters of chaos with us, receives the inbreaking and disruptive spirit through the tearing of heaven itself to bring life and hope and healing to all of us. This tearing open, it's significant. It's something we need to pay attention to in our oldest gospel. Because the other gospels, they use words like opened up. But particularly in the Greek, this is a word of ripping, of tearing, of splitting. This is a, a forceful action. Why use that word? Because Mark was written 
right about the time of the Jewish revolt where everything came to a head and everything exploded in violence for four years across the entire land of Israel until eventually everything was wiped out and Jerusalem was destroyed. And when you're on that kind of tension and you're in that kind of reality and darkness and chaos and greed and judgment, the way of God that comes in, even being light and love, it rips it all open. It's disruptive. It leaves people slamming their eyes shut and saying, ah, it's, it's, it's too much. It hurts because the tearing apart of heavens is the only way that God's going to truly be able to come in and say no to the game altogether. The question was upon people's hearts. Well, who's going to win? Which side is God going to take? Is God bless Rome? Does God bless Israel? The Judeans, the Galileans, the Samaritans, the, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Sadducees, Pharisees. Who does God side with? And God says, no, no. I don't even play that game. I don't even play that game. My kingdom comes in and rips open the very fabric of reality itself. And God's going to do it so that we have access to heaven itself amidst our reality. The response from God is love. Love to humble the very Son of God to enter into the waters with us. The love of God to tear open the heavens so that the Spirit may come and be available to Jesus and then to us through him. Love that spoke in that moment when heaven bursts in for the first time and how long. And the words are, to Jesus, you are my son, my beloved. And you I am well pleased. The very word of God has emptied itself to stand with us, to receive the love and the spirit. And for Mark, you know, you notice in this baptism story, we don't have any details about the baptism at all. It doesn't stop us from trying to force him in there to, to push our ideas. But what happened at the baptism, the method doesn't even matter to Mark. It's what happens right after the baptism that is the focus and that is important. In the scripture, it's John baptized Jesus. And as Jesus came up from the water, he looked and the heavens were torn apart. And the Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice said, You are my Son. And then the rest of the gospel, we're only 11 verses in to the whole gospel. The rest is about what Jesus did following the baptism, the life he lived after. This is how God sets things right. Not by the games of humanity, but by the way of love, because God is love. Jesus embodies this love by even entering into the waters. He embodies the love when he goes to the cross. And there we find another tearing as the presence of God in the temple is suddenly available to all. It is there in that moment through that love and death on the cross that somebody who's not even a part of the people of Jesus looks and says and confirms for only the third time in the entire gospel, this is the Son of God. God only spoke to Jesus in the moment of our reading today, and it takes the whole story for people to start to realize that it's true, that God is working in a way none of them expected, that God's kingdom works completely different, that it, the response of God to the darkness and chaos of the world is love. 
Agape, self-giving, sacrificial, hold nothing back, expect nothing in return, go to the cross, love. This is the way of God on full display through Jesus Christ. This is the way of discipleship that we are all invited into. Now we can, we can join in with Jesus through baptism to receive the exact same spirit as the life of us is torn open so that heaven may come and be a part of us here and now, the kingdom of God present within us, God in the presence of Christ now with us. A baptism that is as disruptive now as it was then because the very fabric being torn open, it is life-changing. Who we are or who we were up to that moment is gone. It doesn't define us anymore. If we take it to the full extent, our family name, we leave behind. We now belong to God, and we carry the name of God, and we seek to glorify God. We are now disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not disciples of ourselves or anybody else. We're not citizens of any nation or group. We're citizens of heaven. That's a tearing. That's a piercing. That's disruptive. It hurts. It takes a while for us to work this out, what all it means and how it's lived. It's not what happened prior to our baptism that defines us. It's what happens after that defines us. It's our commitment to the way of God, love, and everything that we do. It's the, it's the con convenient way that we just accept the grace of God. It's there it's available to us all, at all times, at any time, we simply accept it. And this simple acceptance redefines everything, or at least it begins the process of redefining everything. We may enter to the waters with lots of different ideas of the people around us, but we're entering the waters, and that's what matters. We're turning to God. God, you, you define it. You start telling me where I need to be renewed, and in what way and how. You teach me the way of love. When we step into those waters, we are justified from our past. We carry nothing forward. Anything we've ever done, the pain, it's still there. The pain that we've caused doesn't magically go away, but we are no longer defined by it. We're justified. We're worthy before God. And in that same moment, we receive that Holy Spirit who leads us on this lifelong process of discipleship and this walk of redefining this walk of love, this walk of discipleship and the continuing tearing of the very fabric of who we are as God continues to work. God enters into our very beings, our very hearts because we're loved. The Holy Spirit enters into us to create that kind of love into us, to bring us into that way and that reality of love. If you've never been baptized and you're thinking, yeah, I, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Then reach out to us. Reach out to us and, and consider the words that we're going to offer as we all remember our baptism together. But if you have been baptized and you're invited to remember, because we've all said the words and we all began the process, but we're all still learning and, and we've messed up and we've gotten off track at times, it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that God's love for us has never failed. 
that God's commitment to us has never waned. God does not get off the path, which is why we, we understand that you've been baptized once, then remembering is what we need to do. Remembering and recommitting ourselves. And so it's necessary that we remember. Because love is, is a way that we have to learn and struggle to grow into. Because love is not taught to us. We may have gotten it if we were in a good home. Maybe we got a good, you know, flawed, but a good love from a parent or a grandparent. But not everyone had that. Even if you did, you step outside of your home and suddenly you see the world around you does not operate by the way of self-giving, expecting nothing in return, sacrificial, holding nothing back, love. Love is not the foundation of our culture. It's not the foundation of our nation. It's not the way that we witness all around us. So it's hard. It's hard to grow into it. It's so easy to not love. We need to be reminded of the way of love. And it's good for us to be together. That's why being the church, that's why being baptized and becoming a member of the church is so important because together we make that journey easier. We encourage one another. We hold each other accountable. We love each other in this sacrificial way. Not pointing fingers, not demanding anything in return, but rather being love for, with, and through one another all because we have the Spirit making it happen. It's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's mysterious, and God wants all of us to be a part of it. But even though we can't be together right now the way we want to be, know that God knows no boundaries, and the Holy Spirit can work right here in this virtual space. And God's going to continue to tear apart the heavens to get to us and in us, to get through us the way of love. It's true. In whatever way we can, let's be together. Let's be together in spirit and lift up and remember our baptism together because we're part of the new creation, a new family, sisters and brothers. And while we can certainly participate in the world around us, we can be a part of the politics and other groups of our community, other groups around our nation, certainly. But they do not define the foundation of who we are and they do not challenge our mandate to live into the way of love. They cannot. And so we have to be together as the church to remind ourselves. As a witness to the way of self-giving love, we have the ultimate power over violence and, and blame. And I want to offer an image also from Wednesday to illuminate the power and the long-lasting word of love. This is Congressman Andy Kim. After the chaos subsided within the Capitol building, this picture was taken around midnight that night. The congressman said, quote, I was just overwhelmed with emotion. It's a room that I love so much. It's the heart of the Capitol, literally the heart of this country. It pained me so much to see it in this kind of condition, end quote. The condition he's speaking about is in the aftermath they found trash tattered flags they found blood feces urine they found a little bit of everything strewn through the whole building and congressman kim's love for it all he could have responded a number of ways a way that 
hundreds and thousands of people had already responded that day. Not the people in the building, but all of us watching, taking to Twitter and social media and all the fellow leaders that were speaking out publicly. But Congressman Kim embodied a different message. He got down on his knees and he started bringing order to the chaos. With an attitude of love, because he loved it so much, he gets down in his suit, which I'm sure was not cheap, and starts cleaning up the mess himself. Starts offering a rebirth to the space. Starts remaking it through the power of love. And of all the things said that day, my hunch is in 50 years, when people read about it, when people look in their history books and they see images, the one that's going to have the biggest effect then is going to be the one that has some of the biggest effect now because look at the message that the person who shared this via Twitter had to say. They said, I've seen a lot of pictures at the Capitol, but this one tugged at my heartstrings. Love will always have the final and lasting word. Self-giving and sacrificial love. The love that gets on its knees to clean up the mess. The love that enters into the waters, the love that tears open the heavens, the love that goes to the cross, the love that does not respond in anger and violence and finger-pointing and condemnation, the love that does not resort to the kind of violence and chaos that we witnessed, but rather the love of God, which we are invited into through baptism. And when we were baptized into the Methodist Church, or if you became a member of the Methodist Church or, or will become, we make a commitment. On that day, we make a commitment, and, and I invite you to remember that commitment by recommitting to it now. So let us remember our covenant. Let us accept that God has never ceased to remain faithful to us. And so, I ask you, those who are members of the United Methodist Church, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? If so, say, I do. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in His grace, and promise to serve Him as your Lord in union with the church which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races? According to the grace given to you, will you remain faithful members of Christ's holy church and serve as Christ's representatives in the world. Friends, let us remember our identities as daughters and sons of God, with Christ as our brother. Let us remember who we are and whose we are amidst the darkness and chaos around us. Let us remember that it's the life that we live after our baptism that we commit to, in this life of discipleship. Let us love each other. 
Let us love our neighbor. Let us let that love tear open the world around us that the way and will of God and the kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ may enter in and bring about the rebirth we all crave. My friends, let us continue on and be the light of God through the Holy Spirit and through the power and presence of Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us, and it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.